And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Genesis. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. The ushers would love to bring you a Bible. We are going to be in Genesis chapter 13. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a, a more common and more repetitive kind of cultural and societal conversation about the topic of anxiety. A lot of people are talking about it. In many ways, a lot of good has come out of these various conversations. But I think one of the reasons why we're talking a lot about anxiety these days and our individual anxiety is that it's really common. I mean, you, you might not think of yourself as an anxious person this morning, but, but you know that feeling that you get in your stomach, those butterflies, the, the sleepless nights, the rehearsing over and over and over again about how you want things to go. You know that feeling. You remember those times in which you are fearful, worried, stressed out, and anxious. And in many ways, let's be honest, some of the reason for why we are anxious as individuals and as a society is that there are a lot of things to be anxious about. There are a lot of things to worry about. Because though most days we don't like to admit it, there are a lot of things, and actually most things, are out of our control. Cancer does not ask our permission to evade our body. There are lots of things in which affect our lives, decisions that are made that produce in us worry and anxiety. And in some sense, just anxiety and worry and stress are the natural byproduct of living in a broken world. And yet, have you ever walked with someone or been watching someone whose world is falling apart. The, the, the storm of life is crashing over the bow of their life, and yet, in the midst of every reason to worry, they're steady. You guys ever seen this? They have every reason to worry, every reason to be stressed out, and yet, they walk and live courageously, patiently, gently. They're just steady. And you watch those people those men and women who just have a calm to them in the midst of the storm of life, and you wonder, how do they do it? How can they live lives of calm when the world is swirling all around them? Today's text, Genesis 13, is all about that. It is very much an answer to that question. This fall, we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham from roughly Genesis 12 to Genesis 23. And we're calling this sermon series Living in the Gap because Abraham, if you didn't know, he lived in the gap between God's promises and the fulfillment of those promises. But Abraham isn't unique. We too live in the gap. God has made many promises to which he has yet to fulfill, and so we live in the gap between those promises. And this morning, what we learn is that in order to increase our confidence in God as we live in the gap, we need 
to realize and embrace a simple truth. It is the big idea that I'm going to give you this morning. It is the argument of our text. For you note takers, here's the big idea. You can't lose what God has promised to give. Let's read all of Genesis chapter 13. So Abram, who's later going to be called Abraham, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar, to the altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, who had also flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It's not the whole, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zohor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram set Settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled along the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So Genesis 13 really is broken down into three movements. Three distinct, clear sections. In verse 1 through 7, we've got a problem. And then in verses 18 through 13, we have a solution to that problem. And then in verses 14 through 18, we have a twist. So a problem, a solution, and then a twist. I think in many ways, whether you're writing a movie or writing a novel, this really is the hallmarks of a good story. Conflict, solution, twist ending. Genesis 13 starts with Abram, and he was a man who God called out of modern-day Iraq. God called him in chapter 12 and said, I've given you this land, the land of Canaan. Go, follow me, and here are the promises. The promises of Genesis chapter 2 basically fall into three categories. I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you offspring, and I'm going to give you universal blessing. And though it was inconceivable, I mean, Abram was a foreigner. He had no right to this land. And 
His wife was barren. Nevertheless, Abram believed in the promises of God and followed God and moved to Canaan. And at the end of chapter 12, what we have is Abram, because of famine, takes a sort of unlikely pit stop in Egypt. But now, starting in chapter 13, we have Abram back in the land of promise. And he's there with his nephew, Lot. Now, no sooner than we sort of figure out the setting, we're, we're introduced to a big problem that we see in verses basically four, five, six, and seven. The problem's simple. Abram and Lot are filthy rich. All right? They're like, you know, Warren Buffett rich. All right? It says they've got, they've got silver, they've got gold, they've got female donkeys. That's like the, the super yacht of its day. They are filthy rich. And if you just think about it, Abram's lot, Abram's kind of, you know, money and then Lot's money, they're living in basically the same land and the land cannot sustain them both. Verse 17, there's this little kind of throwaway sentence that you read about the Canaanite and the Perizzites. Well, basically that's just saying that the Canaanites and the Perizzites, these two other people group, are already there. They've taken the best parts of that land. And so Abram and Lot are living off of, you know, they've got the, the, the seconds, the leftovers of what they've already taken. And I think it's interesting that sometimes we think that prosperity solves problems. But here we learn that actually prosperity was the very reason for this problem. I remember I was talking to um, a friend of mine, and he is a very wealthy and successful man. And I remember talking with him and saying, just we were just processing life, and he told me, he confided in me, that, that it's really hard because one of the hardships of his life is that when people interact with him, he never knows that people want to be friends with him because of who he is, his personality, or if they just want to be friends with him because of what he can give them financially. So in the back of his mind, always, as people come in and out of his life, as people want to be friends with him, is, am I just a piggy bank to you? Sometimes money can solve some problems, but sometimes actually money produces more problems, and that's what we have here. The wealth, though not condemned in any way, the wealth of Lot and Abram creates a problem. They can't both live in the same kind of parcel of land. There's too many goats, not enough hay. There's too many horses. I don't know. I probably messed that up. I should go to the Puyallup Fair more. Whatever, right? There's too many animals, not enough food. And so basically you hear Lot looking up at his uncle saying famously, right, this, this, this land ain't big enough for the both of us. So... That's the problem. That's movement one. Movement two, Abram suggests a solution to this problem. Look there down in verse eight. Abram basically says, I don't want there to be any strife between us. I don't want there to be conflict. I want there to be peace, right? Every family has a peacemaker. Abram's one of them. And so he's pursuing peace with Lot, and he tells him, we've got to separate. The land can't sustain both of us, so let's separate. 
and then says, come on, let's go up to, to the hill country. And then I want you to do a 360 and survey kind of the land. And whatever you see, if you're like, oh, the right side's great, I'll go to the left. And if you're like, I like the left side, I'm going to go to the right. Now, that's really generous of Abram. Abram should not have done this. Not because he's wrong to do it, but because culturally speaking, that's not how things go. Abram is the superior. Lot is the inferior. Abram's the the patriarch of the family. Lot's the nephew. And if you're sort of reading between the lines, it's clear that Lot got rich off the back of his uncle. So when Abram says, Lot, you get first dibs, you're like, Abram, that's not how this works. But it's sort of not just like ancient Near Eastern culture. We wouldn't do this. I mean, just imagine a father and an 18-year-old son. Some of you, this is very easy to imagine, all right? And imagine your 18-year-old's like acquiring some wealth and some goods and his bedroom spilling out. And, and you realize that this house isn't big enough for the family and the 18-year-old. And so the father has a heart-to-heart with his son and says, okay, what are we going to do? And just imagine a father saying, okay, survey the property, the land, the, the house. Okay, what, what you want, you get first dibs. And can you imagine the 18-year-old go, I want the house, mom and dad, you get the shed. That's what's going on here. It's literally absurd. Abram should have first dibs. But here, the first choice goes to Lot. And so Lot looks, he takes the 360, he's looking at all the land, and he sees a land that is so amazing, the land is so beautiful that he's like, it reminds me of two things. Eden and the oasis of Egypt. And so Lot takes the obvious choice. Now, I think sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we, we stand and we're like, come on, Lot. Like, that's pretty self, selfish. That's just about your naked self-interest. You should have kicked it back to your uncle and been like, no, 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 no. No, no, not me. Thank you. But you, like, you know, done that little dance, that, that evangelical polite dance. We can look down at Lot, but would we do anything different? So we, we prayed for Piper, who is going to Eastern Washington University, which I whooped because my parents were both professors there, so I'm a fan. Um, but just imagine for a moment, by way of illustration, if I gave you a forced choice between two universities, okay? You got a full ride, full scholarship, tuition, room board, and after four years, you get a degree from either choice one, Stanford University in sunny California. Choice one. Or... Let me get this right. Eastern Gateway Community College in Steubenville, Ohio. Those are your two choices. If you're like, where in the world or what is Eastern Gateway Community College? If you went there, this is really going to offend you, and I apologize in advance. It is, according to a not very exhaustive search by my part, the worst college in all of America. All right? It's like real, real bad. It's so bad that the, the people who do accreditation have pulled the accreditation and they're on probation and from all apparent purposes, there ain't no chance of them getting off probation anytime soon. Option one, Stanford University. Option two, Eastern Gateway Community College in Nowheresville, Idaho with a degree that means less than nothing. What are you going to choose? I mean, it's, I know the Pac-10's imploding, but like, come on. Stanford all day, every day. 
It's easy to sort of look at Lot and be like, Lot, why would you do this? But Lot looks at all of it. He sees the obvious choice and he takes it. And the principle for us is simple, right? The heart wants what the eye sees. And really, Lot's wayward eyes foreshadows Lot's wayward trajectory and life. We see a hint of that, a sort of foreshadowing of that in verses 10 and verse 13. There's a parenthetical kind of phrase all about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going that way. He's going towards Sodom. He's going to east. If you're ever reading the Bible and someone goes east, not good. We read of that this was before Sodom and Gomorrah got destroyed. And then we read of why Sodom and Gomorrah got destroyed in verse 13. Because the men were, that were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. That's the way that Lot is going. The heart wants what the eye sometimes sees. And he chooses based on a sort of blind, naked self-interest. Now, the Bible, and specifically the New Testament, uses Sodom as a placeholder for just the pursuit of evil, the pursuit of sin. It's a sort of metaphor. It's a literal city, but then it becomes kind of expanded to just a a metaphor for all the ways in which we pursue evil or pursue sin or pursue uh, a trajectory apart from God. And sometimes and often, the simplest and fastest way to the Sodom, the Sodoms in our world or the sin in our world is just stepping on brick after brick of naked self-interest. I mean, the Bible's filled with these stories. Filled with these stories. It is an old story. Adam and Eve, they, they want knowledge. But in the end, because of their sin... They get ignorance. Cain wants to be first. He ends up being cursed. The city of Babel wants to make a name for themselves, but in the end, they lose their culture. Pharaoh wants absolutely, absolute control, but then he's drowned in the end by a lack of control. Saul wants naked power, but found only plight. Haman hung his entire life on a desire for position, and ironically, at the end... He dies by hanging. Judas wants riches. In the end, he died with nothing. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look more generous than they were, and their hypocrisy ends with them having nothing. I mean, we could go on and on and on. And it's not just Bible stories. We could tell stories that we see in our world in which you pursue self-interest. You put yourself first, and you just run at self-interest, and eventually it leads to destruction. One of the reformers in commentary of this said that Lot thought he was pursuing paradise, but in the end realized that he would end up in hell. That's Lot. It's an old story written in the sorrow of many, many people's lives. The first become last. What does it profit a man to gain the world but lose his soul? So that's the problem. 
The problem is conflict related to their growing prosperity. The solution, Abram tells Lot, we got to separate, and Lot goes east towards Sodom and Gomorrah. But then, right towards the end, there's this twist. It's an amazing twist. Because the setup is so amazing. We're like, Abram, you're getting hosed here in this deal, right? Like, if, if Abram was sitting down with his financial planner, he'd be like, Abram, you're, you're, this is not wise. Like, go hang out uh, with more financial advisors. Like, do not give away the best part of the land. Lot takes the best. And we learn amazingly in this twist that it's as if Abram says, all right, Lot, I'm going to give up my seat on the airplane. And Lot rushes to first class. And as Abram's walking to the back, all of a sudden, God chucks Lot the keys and the deeds to the airplane and says, it's all yours. See that? God does the same thing that basically Abram did to Lot. He says, let's go up on a mountain, and I want you to do a 360. Look, north, south, east, and west. And guess what, Abram? It's all yours. That's the twist. Abram thought, or we might think as readers, that Abram gave away the land, the promised land, but This is what we learn, and this is the big idea. You can't give away what God has promised to already give. And that's what God reiterates in verses 14 through 18. He reiterates the promise that he had already given Abram back in chapter 12. He reiterates and reminds and reaffirms all the promises to the land, to offspring, and universal blessing. They are still yours. You can't lose it, Abram, because... I promised to give them to you. This is why Abram can be so generous. It's why Abram can have such generosity. It's why Abram can have such a a steady calmness. It's why he can be bold in the midst of this storm. Abram can't give away the promised land because God has already promised that he's going to give it to him. Abram knows something that Lot hasn't figured out yet. Abram cannot give or he cannot lose that which God has promised to give. So God says, it's, 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 it's all yours. And Abram's like, ah, I don't know if I believe it. And he goes, I'm going to give you an object lesson. And so God turns to Abram and says, I want you to pick up some sand, some dirt. And then he goes, count it. And Abram's like, that's pretty hard. And he's like trying to count the sand. And, and he's like, I, I can't. And he's like, exactly, exactly. Every time you pick up some sand, every time you see sand, I want to remind you, it should be a reminder that your offspring will be as innumerable and unnumberable as the sand that you're holding right now. It's a reminder. And then God says, grab your walking stick, Abram. We're going on a walk. You need to walk the the breadth and the length of the promised land, which is a symbolic act of Abram claiming the land. He doesn't have it yet, but by him walking around it, he's living as though he already had it. When I was 16, I got my first car, and I acted like it was my car. But my parents bought it, and the deed was on, was in their name. And yet, that was my car. I pretended like it was my car. I acted like it was my car. I drove it like it was my car. And someday, I knew it would be my car. That's what's going on here with Abram. He walks the promised land in faith because he knew 
one day it would be all his because God now once, now twice had said, it's all yours. It's all yours. I mean, this is, this is a twist. It's an amazing twist. It really is one, the, the sort of contrast between Abram and his nephew. But you see, Abram's kind of life and his behavior here isn't just that he's just a great chap, he's just a really godly man, and so he, he, he just really just, no, he, he knows something. He knows that he can be generous. He knows that he can be gracious. He knows that he can live a life because he knows the God to which that promise is attached to. Now, if you haven't been to church for a while, maybe you're like, this is kind of weird. Like, how could someone live like this? How could someone be that generous? How could someone give the best part of the land to his, his nephew? And you might be thinking, well, doesn't God help those who help themselves? Not exactly. Really, a Christian can live generously, can live sacrificially, can give themselves away, can do the sort of opposite of a lot and live not for self-interest but for other-centeredness and can do so because of the promises of God. Because we know we can't lose what God has promised to give. Knowing that I might get taken advantage. Knowing that injustice might come upon me. Knowing that daily and weekly and yearly my fairness meter is going to go off. But whatever storm is swirling around in my life, one thing I can be assured of, I can't lose what God has promised to give. Now, this is an amazing promise that God reiterates in chapter 13, but did you know in the New Testament, we've got lots of promises. And in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, actually the writer tells us that we have better promises than even Abram had back here. Romans chapter 8, Paul reminds us of this very thing. He, he sets up Roman, the middle of chapter 8 of Romans is all about weakness and anxiety and worry. And then he writes this. Paul writes, what then shall we say in response to all these things, all this worry, all this stress? What, what should we say about all this? Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he also among all of it, uh, along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. It's a really simple argument. It's from the greater to the smaller. Basically, he's saying, if God, the infinite God, gave his son, how much more so will he give you what you need to get through the day? If God gave his son to die for the sins of the world, to, to, to die in our place, how much more so will he help you in the midst of the anxiety and worry of life? If God gave Jesus to pay for your sin, to die in light of your sin, and to give you a new heart, if he did all of that, and just think about the enormity of that gift, if he did that, as great as that is, then how much more will he give you all things? The sheer graciousness of the gift of Jesus' son is the, the sort of foundation to which we can say, he's going to get me through this day. 
He's going to help me. Why? Because if he gave me his son, he's not going to withhold anything I need in this life, at this moment, this week. Abram had a bit of that confidence. He lived confidently that God had given him an amazing promise. He lived knowing that he couldn't lose that which God had promised to give. But brothers and sisters, in a far greater way, we have the promise of Jesus Christ. And in a far greater way, you can't lose what God in Christ has promised to give. Whatever storm may break upon your life, whatever comes this week, whatever hardship befall you, you can't lose what God has promised to give. Whether that's disappointment, a diagnosis, that project that you have to be the speaker for that you're like, I don't want to do and I'd pay money to get out of. Whatever the worry that comes sort of naturally into our lives, root yourself in the promises of God. Fight that faith. Memorize those promises because those promises are attached to the unwavering God. You can't lose what God has promised to give. For what shall I say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Lord, we are just so thankful for for all that you're doing in and through our lives. And in the midst of our lives, which which feel so unsteady, we feel like a buoy being shaken in the sea of life. And yet, Lord, we are thankful that you are the unchanging God. Help us to put the object, to put our faith in you. And Lord, we pray that whatever stress we have in our lives right now, that we would remind ourselves, that we would remind each other that because you are the unchanging God, we can go to the bank with your promises. All the promises of God are amen. And so in light of all that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.